Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. It's a little bit lonely in the studio today because I am not looking across the microphone at my colleague, Claudine Fry. We're doing things a little bit differently this time around. I took a whirlwind tour of Latin America, courtesy of my colleague, Gavin Strong. The two of us sat in our London studio, started in Mexico, and wound up all the way down in Brazil touching on political issues, elections, and business risk throughout. Claudine went to Colombia. She also enjoyed the comfort of our London studio, but she met in Bogota, so to speak, with our colleague Silvana Amaya. And the two of them discussed recent elections in Colombia that are putting that country on a political trajectory it has not seen in all of its recent electoral history. So you're going to first hear a little bit from me and Gavin jumping around Latin America, and then we're going to land solidly in Bogota with a real view on what the future for Colombia looks like for politics, for business, and for risk. Latin America is a region that perhaps was possibly the most affected by by the COVID-19 pandemic, both from a humanitarian perspective and also economically. And it's against that backdrop that we have this pretty extraordinary election cycle taking place this year. That's Gavin Strong. Gavin is a principal in the business and the head of political risk for Latin America based in our office in Mexico City. There's persistently a lot of concern in Latin America or investors thinking about Latin America around sort of political st- instability, policy uncertainty. And those, of course, are, are very important sort of things to bear in mind when thinking about investing in, in the region or, or operating as a company in the region. But, and I don't want this to sound facetious, but when you think about- Facetious is okay, Gavin, just in, in, in small doses. Okay, I'll, I'll tread carefully, Chuck. But if you think about Latin America in the sort of broader geopolitical global context, well, perhaps things don't look that bad. Um, and there are certain things happening in other parts of the world that that have implications for Latin America, but perhaps not as directly as, as maybe in Western Europe, for well, example. Let me stop you there just for half a second, because one of the things that we do when we have these sorts of conversations is we say Latin America, or we say Europe, or we say Asia Pacific, or we say Africa. These are not monolithic entities. These are regions made up of entirely individual, although interdependent nations, both economically and politically. But let's break it down a tiny bit. And and I think you're absolutely right. Um, This sort of pink tide thing is a little bit of an analytical trope that people fall into to make it sort of easy and tidy when you're talking about Latin America. Let's focus on Mexico for just a second, though, because you were right to point out, of course, that what we had in Mexico recently were regional elections, but they're setting the stage. And there were some important states that went through an election cycle. Tell us what the message was coming out of there. So I think there are possibly three key messages from those those specific elections. One, 
very much confirm Morena, which is the ruling party at the national level in Mexico, as being the predominant political force in Mexico, both at the national level and also the local level. And it's another kind of milestone in the inevitable move towards retaining the presidency in 2024. So this is AMLO feeling comfortable? Very comfortable comfortable indeed, uh, very happy with life. And I think he feels that the retention of the presidency is all but guaranteed. Clients have been happy with AMLO, unhappy with AMLO? Not so much, Chuck. Particularly in the energy sector where he definitely has shaken things up uh, pretty significantly. I would say, yeah, a lot of damage has been caused, but perhaps not irreparable. But there are certainly clients in that sector in particular that are counting the days for when he leaves office. Another key message was the fact that these elections were taking place in six states, all of which are uh, particularly important for strategic sectors, whether that's oil and gas, uh, renewable energy generation, mining, tourism, you name it. Those sectors are, are covered by those states. And then the third thing, which unfortunately is a discussion we always have when we think about Mexico's security mm. and the role of organized crime, particularly its influence over over local politics. The good thing is, and, and, and it's very rare to have a good news story when we talk about security in Mexico, but this time around in comparison to other electoral processes that we've seen recently in Mexico, there wasn't that much in terms of kind of sort of political organized crime related violence. So some, something good came out of this electoral process. That's that fantastic level of granularity that, that, that comes out of countries when you examine them up close and, and, and you look for the regional trends that have national and even broader sort of Latin American implications. Gavin, you also, from your perch in Mexico City, look after our colleagues in Sao Paulo. From your perspective, is it a red herring to assume that Bolsonaro is going to lose and challenge the results? I do think it is something that organizations, companies, NGOs, you name it, should should prepare for. And it is something that we're actually sort of looking at in, in very particular detail for our clients. And to the point where it's one of the scenarios that we've sort of written about at, at length for, for companies to sort of prepare for. Well, let me pin you down a tiny bit on that one, Gavin, then. Is this an outlier scenario? Is it a likely scenario? At, at this moment in time, it's an outlier scenario, but it, it could quite easily be our, our sort of alternative scenario. We definitely expect at this moment in time to, for Lula to, to win. He's very well placed. And, and given particularly the economic situation in, in Brazil right now, Bolsonaro's sort of chances of winning seem appear to be slim. And I think that's one of the major reasons why he does appear to be laying the groundwork to challenge the, the result, which is likely to go against him. Okay, so you've buried your forecast in the middle of those comments, and that is for a Lula win. And pink tide or not, that is politically, economically, and philosophically a fairly significant shift for Brazil. On the surface, I would, yeah, I would say so. I mean, we're, it's a paradigm shift in that we're going from far right to center left left. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see a sea change in the kind of business environment, investment climate overnight. Lula has already sent some encouraging signs to the markets in terms of you know, his running mate and the types of people that are likely to make up his, his cabinet should he take office. He has a, a sort of track record of being reasonably business friendly. I don't think we're going to see a sort of radical Lula administration. 
Bolsonaro, I think on the surface was someone who maybe would like to portray himself as, as business friendly. But I think if we look at his track record in office over the last few years, uh, I would suggest that not a great deal has been done, certainly from a kind of legislative point of view at sort of improving the business environment, whether that's for local companies or foreign investors. Gavin, when we think back to the first Lula administration and his successor, uh, Dilma Rousseff, then we start thinking about things like car wash and one of the world's largest corruption scandals. Is that over in Brazil? And if Lula comes back, what comes back with him? I don't think that discussion will ever end. I think that's an important part of sort of understanding how to do business in the country. But I do think at least in the last couple of years or so, the conversation has moved on from specifically looking at corruption and, and everything that, it, that that entails to kind of ESG issues more broadly. So of course, there's continued focus on governance and that side of thing, but I think there's an increasing focus on the E and the S. And I have to say kudos to our team in Brazil, who I think certainly from a regional perspective are, are, are very much trailblazers in that respect and are doing you know, really interesting work in the ESG space. In fact, I was speaking to our colleagues only a couple of days ago and they were discussing some of the on-the-ground due diligence work that they're doing in Amapá, which is the state right in the north of Brazil borders French Guiana. Uh, and they're currently doing sort of on-the-ground research, source inquiries, traveling from meeting to meeting on boats. And yeah, it sounds fascinating. So definitely keep an eye out for that type of work going forward. Beyond the election cycle, what are the other hotspots? The country that always comes up in conversation when we're talking about the big countries in Latin America is, is Chile. And obviously there's a lot happening there in terms of the sort of constitutional reform process. Some uncertainty as to how that process will will develop. There's a plebiscite due to happen in the, in the coming months to basically decide whether the, the newly drafted constitution will be ratified or not. Uh, and it seems an outlier scenario is that it will be rejected and that we might go back to square one. That's a country that consistently attracts the attention of, of investors, particularly in the extractive sector, which is given elevated uh, global commodity prices is, is, a, is a sector of particular importance for, for us right now and something that we're discussing almost on a daily basis with our clients. Gavin, I was actually eavesdropping on an internal phone call with our colleagues in Latin America not too long ago. And this was a call discussing the conflict in Ukraine and about some of the shifts that that will force in Latin America, particularly in areas like mining, metals, and minerals, as some of Russia's more important exports are sanctioned and unavailable to the market. Latin America, certain countries, is it Peru and Colombia, are there to pick up the slack. Is that right? Yeah, Latin America traditionally is kind of a region that has an export-led economy, represents a, a huge opportunity, particularly from a mining perspective. I think potentially as well, there are opportunities in agriculture, although the flip side to that is the global shortage in fertilizers obviously has implications for, for those countries that are trying to, to develop or expand agricultural exports. And there's also been a lot of discussion around the oil and gas sector and the possibility that Latin America could step up to the plate and try and fill the sort of hole in the, in the global oil supply. And that's why we've seen tentative discussions, for example, between Venezuela and the US, potential sort of easing or lifting uh, of sanctions. 
without, again, generalizing about an entire region, what's your view on political stability, civil unrest, and, and just sort of keeping the peace around the region under circumstances that typically would drive a lot of instability? It's kind of difficult to, to pinpoint very particular hotspots that we may see in the coming months, because frankly, I think we're likely to see sort of bouts of civil unrest across the region as people express their unhappiness or there's a, a Spanish word, artasco, which loosely is translated as sort of wearied exasperation. And I think that is very much sort of, yeah, fits the zeitgeist at this moment in time. Venezuela, what's the latest? Tentative rapprochement with the US, but we're still a long way from Venezuela opening up, dare I say, to becoming a sort of business-friendly, investor-friendly destination. This is real politic at work, and that is that the world needs Venezuelan oil, and that means having to do business with countries that you find particularly unpalatable. A hundred percent. But I, I, using your word, real, real politic, uh, that's true. But I think the way in which the US administration has gone about that kind of detente has been ham-fisted. And it also looks kind of opportunistic in, in the sort of broader context of what it's trying to achieve out of that detente. So I don't think that's providing the platform for meaningful change in Venezuela going forward. I mean, I don't think there's any way that we can expect any single nation to fill the gap that's created by the growing embargo on, on Russian oil. The countries that are left to turn to include, among others, Venezuela and Iran, both places that are politically unpalatable and putting it mildly. And, and, and even if they weren't, probably wouldn't help us plug the gap anyway. But in Latin America, I don't, I don't think it, sh it should be Venezuela. In fact, frankly, it can't be Venezuela. The oil and gas sector has been decimated both by mismanagement and corruption locally. And of course, dare I say it, by sanctions imposed by the US. Actually, in Latin America, we should be looking more at Brazil and also Guyana. There appears, at least on the surface, sort of genuine political will to avoid the kind of mistakes made both in neighboring Venezuela and I think similar case studies in, in, in continents like Africa. But that's something the Guyanese government can't do alone. And so, as I say, there's multilateral support, but I think there's also an opportunity for, for companies who behave in a certain fashion to carve out an opportunity on that front as well. Gavin, take us briefly into Argentina. Let's start with the positive. Finally, there is a deal with the IMF that has been ratified by Congress. And hopefully that puts to bed some of the uncertainty surrounding the economy and helps address the financial volatility that the country has experienced for years on end. I think the issue we're going to see in Argentina going forward, and in particular in the build-up to the next general election in a couple of years, is again, a focus on the sort of political direction that the country is going to take in the long term. Are we going to finally see the death of Peronismo? Are we going to see a split within that sort of wing of, of that political movement? Or are we going to see them sort of strengthen and position themselves for another electoral victory come 2024? If that's the case, then I think all of the good work relating to that agreement with the IMF could very easily be unraveled. And let us not forget as well, some of the terms that the Argentine government agreed to as part of that deal with the IMF are not particularly popular. 
Uh, and so it's efforts to kind of implement some of those things, some of those austerity measures are going to be difficult and we're going to see a lot of pushback. I feel like I've heard this before about Argentina. Because we've been there before and we'll be there again. And that's why, as much as we may want to, Argentina is a huge country, a huge economy, lots of potential, but it's really difficult given that sort of recent history of political uncertainty, uh, financial volatility. It's really difficult to speak of Argentina in the same breath as your, your Mexico's, your Brazil's, your Colombia's, your Chile's. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks very much for hosting me. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. one in the runoff, it's a bit under 700,000 votes, which is not a big difference for a runoff in Colombia. And Rodolfo Hernández, in a way, he did not sort of gain a lot of support for himself, but mostly because he was the one facing Petro and people, some people in the country, almost half of the country, were afraid of Petro being named as the president. That's Silvana Amaya senior analyst based in Bogota and an expert on Colombia. Both candidates, we, we can say both anti-establishment candidates, although this has been changing now, were facing each other and they were both proposing change. That was a clear message of people being tired of the statu quo and people being tired of traditional politicians. But having said that, after Petro won on the 19th of June, we have seen some new alliances that let you think if Petro will actually remain an anti-establishment president. And from our point of view, from what we have analyzed in the team in the Bogota office, is that he's actually becoming more establishment than he what he proposed from the early stages of his campaign. And how much power does the president in Colombia have? Are they re- very reliant on legislators? The president in the country has a lot of influence in many aspects of different institutions and also different ways on how things can be can be seen. We do sort of foresee institutions playing their role and the Comptroller General and other sort of institutions, watchdogs, playing their part on limiting somehow the power that the president might have, especially if there is some sort of abuse of power. And this is some of the messages that we are sending to businesses that are concerned about how this might change and might affect the rules that are being applied to them and how decisions that are not under rule of law can be changed. What's the general mood, Silvana? Have people interested in Colombia been surprised, alarmed, concerned? What sort of questions are you helping clients manage? I think overall, we need to be aware that this is something happening in the region. We saw that a couple of months ago with Chile when Boric won. He's also a left-wing president in, in governing Chile right now. We saw that over a year ago in Peru, where Pedro Castillo won the election and he's also left-wing. 
We have a left-wing president in Argentina, in Mexico a few years ago, when Andrés Manuel López Obrador also won the presidency. So it's kind of a normal shift that we are experiencing right now in the region. And that's important to say because it's I don't think it's an entire big surprise for anybody who have businesses in the region. They sort of expected this could happen. And it's likely that we are also having elections in Brazil in November. And it's very likely that Lula da Silva, also a left-wing candidate, could win the presidency in Brazil. So we will have a block, a very interesting left-wing block in most of the region. I mean, uh, only a few exceptions like Ecuador, Uruguay and Paraguay are not being governed under the left wing. Businesses are worried because things will change and they know this is not only likely, but almost certain. They are worried, but they, they do know that they can sort of play with the rules because there is a lot of consensus that things have to change. Some of the businesses in Colombia has sort of reacted, saying that they want to support the president, the, the elected president, Gustavo Petro, do some of the key reforms because they understand that Colombia has been suffering from poverty and inequality for a long time, and they want to see things different. They want to be part of that change. But on the other hand, there is some skepticism on how much he will change and how populist he will be, because we cannot forget he is a populist. And he some of his proposals are has this sort of color of populism that uh, it's it's a matter of, of being wary of. It's a matter of concern that is legit. There are some particular industries that are very afraid of how much things can change. One of those in particular, or very clear, is the extractive industry. Both oil, gas, and open peat mining is a big industry that needs to be worried because the extractive sector has been sort of threatened by the president, by the elected president, as he has mentioned very specifically and being very emphatic in saying that he will suspend all new explorations on both oil, gas and open pit mining. So the next six months are critical, are they, Silvana, for us to get a sense of how that balance between living up to populist promises and the reality of government, running government actually plays out, what that really means for business? The first 100 days will be critical to see exactly how ambitious he will be within his agenda and how aggressive he will be in Congress. And by aggressive, I mean how much of these proposals he will present in Congress and how much he will expect that the Congress sort of will support his political agenda. And other positions that are relevant for certain industries are also expected. What what would the people who voted for Petro be looking to see in terms of a positive change as a consequence of his presidency? Colombia had sort of two social breakdowns back in 2019 and then again in 2021 when we saw protests and civil unrest that the last time lasted over seven weeks and it was very intense. What people were sort of reflecting on is that they think they, they needed to see things differently. They needed a more inclusive country. They are suffering hunger. They are suffering poverty. Poverty increased between 2019 and 2021 on over three and a half million people. And obviously that's connected to the pandemic and that's, that has a lot of, of the, of the reasoning behind why things are so complicated right now. And also connecting this to what is happening in 
Russia and Ukraine and also in China, we have seen an increased inflation rate, the highest in the last 21 years of the country. We have an inflation rate of 9.07%, which is dramatically for some of the families, some of the households that do not count with enough money to eat more than twice per day. And I think that's one of the main concerns. So what people is expecting is that those things change, that they can actually have a better life, a better quality of life, that they can access health, education and food. And I think that will be the main focus on Gustavo Petro's government, how to help the poorest of the society and also how to tackle inequality. But having said that, one of our concerns is that he has set up very high expectations for this population. And we don't know exactly how he will meet all these expectations. And this could bring to another social discontent if he does not fulfill those promises. So we will have very important six months where he will have to sort of show his quick wins. He will have to show some specific outcomes on social policies that can help people. Otherwise, people will start thinking that this is this government is the same and that they don't will deliver changes as they expected. Silvana, the, the vice president's a really interesting character, isn't she? Tell us about her and, and the role that she's going to play. Not only is she the second woman to be sitting on the vice presidency, but she's the first black woman in Colombia to be sitting on that position. And I think this is very relevant because she represents a part of the population that has never had representation in the government before, not at that level. And she has a very interesting but also intense discourse about how she represents the nobodies. And that's exactly the word she uses, the nobodies. The people that do not sort of have or are being taken into account by the politician, by the traditional politicians and people that definitely want someone to hear their voice. And I think she was a very important part of Petro's victory because she got a lot of support. She has been very smart in the way she sort of handled communication with the population. She will sort of play an important role on also as a balance to Petro in some, in some aspects. She will probably try to avoid Petro becoming less progressive and try to remember him that he proposed more changes than he will actually deliver. So he will push Petro further on his agenda, and she will play that important role on women representation and minorities representation. How interesting. And what a moment. The nobodies, that's a really evocative term. Fascinating. It'll be really interesting to watch how this all unfolds in the next few months, Silvana. Thank you very much for sharing these observations with us. Thank you so much for, for listening and, and for organizing this very interesting chat. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And 
goodbye from me, 